Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So today, for the second part of our mini-series on Correlated Reflections, we're delighted to be joined by two of our other LCP consultants, Priscilla Cavule and Phil Boyle. Priscilla, Phil, welcome to the show. Great to have you here. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks very much. It's fun. So this is the first time ever that we've had more than one guest on our show. There'll be a few firsts during this episode, but what we usually do is get our guests to introduce themselves. But I think with there being two of you to keep it punchy, could you maybe each just tell us how many years in the industry and maybe the most pivotal moment in your career? And start with Priscilla. Thank you, Mary. I've been working in the industry for about six years now. Pivotal moment has to be this year so far, hands down. Okay, thank you. I'm 30 years, just over 30 years, in fact, I've been a consultant. The most pivotal moment for me was probably about 15 years ago when I landed in Pakistan on a project for the World Bank to help understand and reform the way that investments were managed in one of the biggest companies in Pakistan. That was a real game changer for me. Fantastic. I suppose it's probably clear to listeners at this point, we've got a sort of a range of experience deliberately on the show today. Obviously, Priscilla reflecting on perhaps the first major markets crisis of her career and, and Phil, one of our more experienced advisors. So really interested to hear some of the contrasting views and, and, and takeaways that the both of you have had. You've both written these up as blog articles, we should say, which we'll, we'll share the links to. But Priscilla, why don't you kick us off? Your first big markets crisis, what are you taking away from it? What surprised you? What really stands out looking back at the year? I think for me, having only ever read about the financial crisis and you know all the past crises that we've had and then going through it now, thinking about it, it's not quite how I expected it to go in the sense that I always thought about the financial crisis and broader implications of it in terms of falling assets or changes in yield or inflation expectations and what have you. But I think as a consultant going through this year in particular has felt a lot more different because you forget that we're the point of contact for a lot of our clients. And it just means that we are keeping up with updates and in a year like 2020 where everything's changing very, very quickly just means that those updates get very, very frequent. And I guess identifying opportunities along those and everything happening else in the background on regulatory changes and a lot of other things, it's been very fast-paced. And I guess the takeaway for me is just how much has been going on and I almost haven't processed it all. And I guess that point about communication is really key and we've probably all felt it this year, certainly. Phil, I guess with experience of more than one crisis, has that felt quite different this time or is it a typical feature of a crisis? It really has felt quite different, this one. Most crises, something dramatic happens. From one day to the next, you have changed the state that you're in. This crisis has been long and drawn out. It's a bit like having the flu, really. It just gets gradually worse. And then it peaks at some point. I don't think we've actually peaked yet. But it has been an unusual crisis in that you know something dramatic is happening, but you're not quite sure what the implications are going to be and how you're going to deal with them. So it's been a, a long learning curve. I suspect also with this one, it's probably not felt as bad as people thought it was going to be. But I suspect the lingering long damage that we're going to have from this crisis is going to last for a while. I'm not sure the flu is uh, totally the best analogy. There, but anyway, we'll, sort of, we'll sort of move on from that one. But the same with the topic of communicating to clients, because that is 
really key here, isn't it? I mean, a lot of people make the point that these experiences in crises have to be lived through and can't really be taught. And I suppose that communication point is perhaps at the the heart of it. Priscilla, what what are some of the things you're, you're taking away, reflections on what communication sort of worked, what didn't work, what were clients wanting? What would you say on that? I think timely communications were very much appreciated. So you can imagine a lot of things going on in markets where assets suddenly fall and yields rising and governments putting out a lot of money to offer help. I think clients wanting that extra bit of comfort to know what's happening. Should they change? Should they come out of this strategy that they've been thinking about for a long time? Should they rebalance? So a lot of communications and I guess the underlying core of it is have you thought about our situation what should we do clients appreciate that much directed sort of advice and extra comfort yeah so not so much the fed did this or markets did that it's that happened and the so what for you is this which yeah it's always the hardest thing to say but it's what matters isn't it I agree yes yeah. And I guess actually the, the point Phil just made about maybe this crisis hasn't, maybe it's not over. <laughs> it's a very key point, but maybe it hasn't felt as bad as we perhaps expected. And I guess we have talked previously about there being almost a disconnect between what we're seeing in the world and your cases rising and then what's happening in markets. So to Priscilla's point about communicating and so what does this mean for a client? Actually, what does it mean in terms of asset switches? Because we haven't necessarily seen the trends we might expect in markets as a result. And I guess a lot of that's probably because or a fair bit of that is probably because of central bank intervention as you said Phil the long lasting implications of this crisis may go on for a number of years because so much has been done this year to fix this year but how long does that last Phil do you think that's something that's very different this time around then in terms of the central bank effect absolutely i mean the speed and strength of the intervention and the effect of that has been absolutely dramatic To see a government supporting the entire economy on its shoulders so quickly and so completely was amazing to watch. And yet the impact of that has been quite staggering. I suspect no one sat down and worked out, well, probably not many people have sat down and worked out what that's going to cost us down the line. It's probably going to be quite dramatic, but it's been very successful and very quick. I suppose the big question for investors then, so what there is, and what about the next one then? Is that what we should now expect? Or, you know, the tools used up? Or was that really just a one-off because of how bad it was? Tough to answer that one, isn't it? It is a little bit. I suspect the government itself will learn lessons. They'll discover afterwards where the help was really needed and maybe where there was a bit of waste. And so they might be able to fine-tune their support next time. There's probably been a lot of businesses getting support which didn't really need it. And a lot of businesses not getting enough support when they needed more. So I think there will be some lessons to be learned down the line. One can't imagine that the government will not intervene to such an extent in the future if there's another crisis now. Yeah, I agree with Phil here. I think we also have to remember this is quite different in the sense that this was very health driven. So where governments are pumping in money, it was a little bit different from last time where they were bailing out banks. This time around, they're having to direct um, their funds in a little bit in a different way. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess we sort of saying precedent for intervention, but form of intervention, TBC which I guess it has been from previous crises as well. We sort of learned from the global financial crisis the extent of intervention that was possible, which, of course, was ramped in very quickly this time around. Think about it. Government intervention is usually through monetary policy. It's usually through buying debt in the markets or printing money and buying debt in the markets. But here you're talking about printing money and giving it to companies. That's a very different level of intervention and has been very interesting. Yeah, I suppose it's a lot more direct, isn't it? It's not a gentle encouragement. It's a check in the post. 
it's gone from sort of financial engineering around the edges of society to to physically intervening and giving people money to spend on food. Priscilla, two other things you talked about in your piece, we talked about communications already. Two other things you mentioned were communications and decision-making. Do you want to talk a little bit on those points about how those have stood out to you and what you're taking away from that? Yeah, that's right. And I think maybe focusing on your timely piece a little bit, it's more on the side of opportunities because, you know, as we mentioned earlier, there's a lot that's been going on and clients wondering exactly what that means for them. And part of this is, can they take advantage of some of these opportunities where they have lost money? Can they recover this? Can they somehow find an asset class hidden out there that can try and bail them out? Blog, I specifically talk about an opportunity in, in distressed companies. And this year was a prime example of a lot of these companies that couldn't quite take the pressure of COVID and a lot of them had to stay shut for a, a little bit of time. And this is where the opportunity comes in for clients. But these opportunities don't really stay around for a long time. And it's trying to get in at the right time, trying to identify these opportunities and be able to capture this because there is a lot of other investors that are trying to take advantage of it at the same time. And I think this is where decision-making becomes quite vital. And I suppose, well, there's so many different ways we could go with that. I suppose sticking to the kind of new ideas and particularly the area that you mentioned, Priscilla, on distressed companies, I guess the word distressed probably rings alarm bells with many people listening and when we first raise it with clients, particularly when decision-making in a crisis, how do you think we, I guess, understand well enough the risks that are being taken when we're investing in those sorts of opportunities? It can be a punchy area to bring up, effectively be seen as a vulture, you know, trying to take advantage of some of these companies. But the truth is, it can also be seen as a lifeline offered to a lot of these companies. And I think that sense of it offers um, investors a little bit of a an easier way in, if you may. And for a lot of our clients, we do offer training and understanding in a lot of these areas. And we work with experienced managers. So we don't really just go out and buy the first company that's announced bankruptcy, for example. We work with experienced managers who research these companies in greater detail because when we talk about distressed companies and being opportunities in this case, we're really talking about, yes, companies that are on the brink of bankruptcy or that have filed for bankruptcy. But effectively, we're hoping that when you invest in this company, it will be revived, it will be restructured in a way that you actually, as an investor, end up making a profit. So it is that key in choosing these opportunities. And that's where the manager skill comes in. So we work with experienced managers who've done this analysis behind the scenes, who have looked at these companies and think, right, there is actually an opportunity here because we think this company can effectively be be restructured and brought back to life. And in terms of the decision making there, I think you alluded to it, but there's a lot that needs to get done in advance, I suppose, isn't there? Because you don't want to be trying to help clients understand what these strategies are all about in the moment when markets are swinging around. You, you want to have done that training and that research to get people happy with it sort of in advance. Absolutely. This is one of the key things that I try to bring out in the blog is the fact that it shouldn't be a reaction. I think as an investor, staying well informed in a lot of these broader investment ideas, kind of knowing what else is out there without necessarily needing it today kind of makes you a lot more prepared. So for a lot of our clients that have managed to bank on these opportunities, it's because they were well informed. They did have a structure in place to uh, to make these decisions very, very quickly. It wasn't uh, the first time they were hearing about this. Like you say, Dan, it, it would have been a much, much longer conversation in that case. Phil, you also mentioned, I think, that you were, I think you said you were falling back in love with infrastructure. I wondered if you could just give us a bit more detail on that. I guess I'm falling back in love with the security of income of different income streams. 
there's been a lot of interest in in generating sufficient income streams to live off if you're in retirement or to pay your pensions if you're a pension scheme. We've got a bit complacent, perhaps, and we tend to look at income streams and think that they're quite secure. COVID has really changed my view on that. I've seen companies that haven't dropped their dividends since the war have suddenly had to drop them quite dramatically. So I've been really interested in what's really behind the payment of an income stream where there's a government behind it, a government who is highly motivated to keep things going and to keep things running, particularly infrastructure type assets. I think that's made them a bit more attractive to me through this crisis. And are you talking there more sort of core infrastructure, sort of utilities kind of stuff, or are you thinking a little bit economically sensitive, like roads and ports as well? That's right. I mean, I think after the liquidity crisis, the lesson was too big to fail. I think after this one, it'll be too important to fail. The things that you have to keep running to keep society functioning. I really like that, the the two different ideas on investments coming from totally different angles, but yeah, really, really valid. And I guess whenever we're thinking about, and actually both of those investments can be not entirely liquid. So understanding where your liquidity is and where your income is coming from is really vital with both ideas. Both cases there, I suppose, actually, it does just bear drilling into. I mean, Priscilla, when you're looking at these distressed funds and these opportunities, it's it's a global or at least a pan-European generally mandates, aren't they? They're not just looking for things in the UK, although it does include the UK. That's absolutely right. We are looking, you know, I say we are, these managers who specify in these specific areas, they do look on a global basis. So it's not just purely UK and COVID, for example, where this has been going on all around the world. They are looking for opportunities within Europe within America, within the rest of the world, where they can effectively diversify their portfolio. So it reduces that concentration risk of thinking, okay, we are purely investing in distressed companies within the UK alone, for example. And the thing about distressed sort of companies and managers this year, I suppose, the funny thing is that there have maybe been less distressed companies than you might have thought, given what's happened so far, because of all the support that's been put there. We've had less probably less insolvencies than you might think in this sort of situation, which um, probably will agree that's a good thing for society. Some of these managers might say, well, you're not letting that natural selection of capitalism um, sort of happen. So I guess part of the question is, what's 2021 going to bring? I mean, Phil, earlier you suggested that you maybe take the view that we're maybe not fully through this yet. So I don't know whether you would make a case for there being more of that as we get get into next year. Yeah, I suspect so many businesses have hit a bump in the road. I mean, in my blog, I talk about zombies catching a flu. And it's I hate to think that there's an upside from all this COVID disaster. It's been such a horrible year in so many ways. I've been watching and wondering and very interested in this idea of the zombie economy developing within the UK and the Europe in particular. Companies that probably should have been singled out to fail have survived because debt is so cheap. There's been so much interesting research about the impact, the severe impact on the economy of that, because it strangles almost like seaweed does. The really good companies can't thrive. Then all of a sudden COVID comes along and I suspect the brush of a pen might just kill an awful lot of these zombie companies, almost refresh the economy afterwards. I'm loving the visual metaphors there. We've got zombies catching the flu. We've got seaweed all over the place. It's kind of like, (laughs) it's so evocative. We just want to keep going there. To clarify, I guess, for listeners, by zombie companies, we typically mean what? Companies that are basically only surviving because they've got so much cheap debt and can't really see a way of growing out of that. They're in a catch-22, really. They can afford to keep going because they're making enough profit to service their debt, but that's only because the debt's so cheap and they're not making any extra cash to pay off the mountain of debt. And they're not really investing in growth or investing in the future or innovating. They're just surviving. 
that's why it's negative, I suppose, isn't it? Right? People would say, well, those companies ought to die effectively, for want of a better expression, and that capital be redistributed to the more innovative firms who can grow and, and spend money on growing. That's the basic theory behind it, isn't it? It tends to keep prices down a little bit, and so other companies can't innovate and generate new ideas and develop new products because they're having to compete with the zombies. When you were just talking then, it was making me reflect slightly more broadly, I suppose, on the idea of risk. So we talked about companies not necessarily defaulting on their debt when they should do and zombies continuing when perhaps they shouldn't. It just made me start thinking, does that mean that certain traditional risk metrics kind of haven't worked in recent years? And this resetting that you referred to, Phil, do you think that this means we're back to risk working as it does in the textbooks or are we still a long way off that? My view on risk is... People tend to think of risk as a constant force, whereas having worked for so long and in so many different areas and done a lot of interesting maths, I see risk as varying with time, almost jumping from state to state. Sometimes risks can balloon out and become big and sometimes they get... Mathematically, it's called the heterogeneity. It means risk is not constant. Risk changes with time. I think there's definitely been a dampening down of risk. One of the many effects of zombies is to really damage productivity, and it's as low now as it's been in the last 200 years. They're really dampening uh, profits for good companies. But also, I suspect you're right, I suspect it's been very much dampening down the risks as well. And we might see a little bit of a return to normality and a return to a new phase where companies are defaulting a bit more. Yes, yeah, so on this subject of risk, I mean, it's obviously a key thing to discuss when looking back on a year like we've had. How do you see the overall topic of risk and risk management in the context of 2020? One of the things about risk is there is comfort in trying to describe it mathematically, but COVID teaches you that whenever you think you've got risk buttoned down or hedged, there's something else will happen out there that you've never thought of. Low risk always just means that you don't know what they are yet. There's always something around the corner that's going to hurt you. And that's what makes our job probably most interesting. It's how do you cope in those times? What do you do in those times? Any thoughts on that front? (laughs) Priscilla's right in that the real expert, the real genius in a crisis like this is to put yourself in a position where you can exploit what's happening around you. But that's probably quite rare. I mean, you're talking to maybe one in 20, one in 50 clients are in that position where they can actually move and exploit what's going on. The main job in this crisis is to just make sure you're not one of the people at the end who had their fingers burned by it. And to just to have a simple well-documented approach where you've thought what might go wrong and then you have a plan and you implement it. 90% of my job is actually getting clients to not panic and to stick to the excellent strategies they put in place when it's most tested and when times are most difficult. And we talked on a recent episode about the fact that potentially there is a I'm not sure I'd quite call it a positive but there's a lesson from 2020 that clients and, and certainly individual investors can learn, which is that these risks really are real. So we've had years of risks not really emerging. And actually 2020, I don't know about your clients, but generally, if I'm looking at value at risk as a risk measure, which of course is only one of many, and I'm looking at a sort of one in 20 bad year, generally what we saw this year broadly was a one in 20 bad year, which I think we can probably all agree from a personal perspective, it felt like that. But I think interesting that the numbers back it up and actually that reminder that these risks do play out, I think makes people start thinking about the risks they've not yet considered. Until they start seeing the risks they have considered play out, it's very difficult to imagine any other risks on top of that. Yeah, exactly. And one of the problems is these one in 20 risks seem to have a nasty habit of happening about once a decade or something, or maybe like once every seven, eight years, something like that at the moment, don't they? But 
it still frames the context a bit once you've had an experience of that. And Priscilla, how would you reflect on risk having experienced the big sort of market crash for the first time and having spent six years talking to clients about risk more generally? I mean, I would definitely agree with Phil in the sense that I think for clients and assessing these risks, we do as consultants spend a lot of time trying to get clients to think about these possibilities and risk and what have you. And it does make sense that actually all these strategies that we have put in place, a lot of stress testing, this one in 20 years, this extreme scenario, clients have tested it. They have seen what would potentially happen to their assets. Now, this year, it really did happen where they did lose a significant amount. Mary's mentioned the one in 20, which is really interesting because normally when there's a financial crisis, everyone is in the same boat and everyone suffers the same one in 20 event. It's about how your business survives that event. In this crisis, some people have suffered a one in a hundred year. Overall, there's been a one in 20 event to our economy. Businesses have suffered a one in a hundred year event and some businesses have made a profit out of it and done extremely well. The lightning has struck in very different ways this time, which is really unusual in this crisis compared to previous ones. Yeah. And I guess it does lead to very different experiences. So on last week's episode, we spoke to Jacob and he sort of said, you know, he was picturing the mass unemployment that you hear about and read about from the global financial crisis. And us in this industry are very lucky that we our jobs haven't been affected. And so people having that reaction in a different way means they experience it in a very different way as well. But absolutely, Phil, it goes to individual companies and whether they are a winner or a loser out of it. And it does feel like it's a very binary outcome this time around. It really is, actually. And binary is a good way to think of it because there's not many in the middle Everyone's either some, there are a lot of people that have done extremely well and a lot that have done really, really badly. Also, for them, the misery is only by halfway through. They've got the same to come, I suspect, in the next Yeah, absolutely. So looking ahead to the next year, I know we've touched very briefly on it, but I guess so we've reflected back on 2020, but thoughts ahead to 2021. We've got vaccines started being administered this month. Step one of vaccines administered this month. What sort of year do you see lying ahead for us next year, Priscilla? I think a slightly better one in terms of all of us having a bit more hope (laughs) out there and being able to go out and about, maybe spend some more time with the family. So more positive in that respect. But as financials go, Phil mentioned, we're going to have to come out of this at some point and we don't really know how that's going to affect these huge government debts that have been uh, invested in this year where a lot of money has been given. Somehow that has to be recovered. So in a financial sense, I think it's completely up in the air what could happen. But I think in the shorter term, it's very much good news. And I think we'll, uh, we'll see that in markets as more vaccines get released. I hope it's a wonderful year when we all get have a taste of normality again. I know in my own life, I get the occasional little bit of normality pre-COVID life. And it's lovely. It's delicious to have, have a little bit of normality back. I suspect 2021 is going to be quite frustrating. It won't be long before we're heading for the next Christmas. And we're still wondering why we're still, so, still knee-deep in the crisis when we thought it was all over last Christmas. I guess from an investor's perspective, one of the tricky things about where we are is because things have recovered so well, markets, corporate bond markets, for example, US global equity markets are are all so high. It's getting difficult to actually think about how to generate returns from here, paradoxically. I mean, normally coming out of a crisis, you should be talking about your top five, 10 best screaming opportunities that you're seeing out there. There just aren't very many. I mean, you've you've talked about distress, Phil, you've mentioned infrastructure, but investors are left a little bit with this idea of maybe having to shift a little bit up the risk spectrum, perhaps, to generate the same returns. Yeah, that's right. I think if you think about where the yields are right now and effectively keeping your money in a bank account costs you money, 
if you pay monthly fee on your account, for example, that's probably more than the interest rate that your account is paying you, which means you're effectively paying your bank to keep your money for you. So in that respect, I think a lot of investors are out there thinking, I have to adjust my risk appetite. I have to think of other ways when things are going really well and equities are up and everything's going really well. I think it makes investors think about risk in a different way, which is what Phil was saying. When everything's on the bounce and up and up, you think, well, I don't really need to take the risk of investing in these distressed companies. But actually, when everything is down and no real yield is being out there off to you on cash, then you effectively have to adjust your risk appetite. And also, government support is a bit like a call option protecting your equity bets. You invest in equity markets and a tsunami the size of COVID hits the world and government intervened and propped up the companies. That's a fantastic underwriting of the risks that you're taking in your equity portfolio. Makes it very attractive. And Priscilla, you've been doing a little bit of work, I think, with some non-UK based kind of large institutional investors. Any insights from the way they look at the world that might be a bit different from the way we would look at it as a UK investor. I mean, we were obviously very focused on UK inflation. We're focused on gilts. We're focused on the sort of growth in the UK. But presumably they're coming at it from a bit of a different angle. Yeah, that's right. In the UK, we're very fortunate to have a lot of these investment opportunities. There's big government. We have a lot of government bonds floating out there and a very big listed market, you know, in the UK and good access to global. In some of the other countries, actually, that's not really the norm. They don't really have a large listed market. They do have to look outside these asset classes that we know and love to be able to find this extra yield. So some of the clients that we've been working with, so actually these other asset classes and distressed market or direct investments or infrastructure is very much part of their portfolio. It's not a new investment. It's part of it. It's their norm. It's where their hunting ground, for example. So they were forced to innovate sooner than we were necessarily here. That, that's right. They were very much forced to know about this, to be educated about it, and effectively create these asset classes a lot more than it is out here. In the work that we've done, Priscilla, with, with the African countries, I mean, I think they tend to look at Europe and possibly wonder what, what all our fuss is about over here. I think we've suffered from COVID, I think, a lot more than a lot of the emerging markets, and particularly in Africa, have suffered. And that's partly due to the totally different age profile of the societies. We are so much older. We have so many people over the age of 60 and 70 in our societies because our population growth rates have been so low for so long. The shape of our population has totally shifted and that's been made a bit of a perfect storm for COVID, really. Whereas in major markets where the growth rates have been quite high, their population that are old are quite small and it's been a lot easier to protect them, I think. That is interesting. It's been really interesting to follow emerging markets this year where I guess the COVID outbreak started very close to the Asian emerging markets who dealt with it pretty well. I think they've been sort of poster children almost in terms of dealing with lockdowns and that sort of thing. And then you sort of get through the middle of the year where there's various emerging economies and you're thinking, well, they've got less dry powder effectively. There's less sort of strings that levers that they can pull to help them to cope. The demographic point is a really fantastic one because actually some of these countries haven't been as badly impacted full stop in the first place. So they haven't had to deal with it. I spoke to an investment manager in Namibia this morning. He said that the lockdown has been great for their business because they've been able to go around the corner and meet all their investors just as normal, whereas everyone from the outside world hasn't been able to get in to come and see the clients. And there's a limit to what you can do on Zoom effectively in their business to be able to knock on a door and still see people. It's given them a whole year's advancement in terms of relationships with his clients. As we get close to wrapping up then, perhaps just ask each of you, what one thing would you like the listeners 
to take away from this and perhaps come to you, Priscilla, first on that one? I think I'd have to say that the financial crisis can take any shape or form. I think COVID was very unexpected for me, kind of thinking about where it started. And when it first started, I have to be honest, I didn't actually think it was going to get this far. I heard about China and thought, oh, poor China. I hope they'll be able to deal with it. And suddenly it's come all the way here and we've dealt with it in a not in a very good way, I think. But anything can happen. I think we have to be prepared and we have to be flexible and adapt very, very quickly to a lot of these changing scenarios. The world is surprising, I guess, with a famous quote from Daniel Kahneman. That sounds like that's what you're saying. Brilliant. And Phil? It's not a very sexy answer, I'm afraid. I think there's a moment in every crisis when the room goes quiet and all eyes turn to the investment consultant and they say, what should we do? The answer is really a bit dull. It's We thank our lucky stars that we prepared for this and we just follow what we've said we'll do. We manage our cash flows carefully. We avoid selling things that are falling in value. We invest in things that are falling in value and we just follow the discipline that we put in place. And that's how you survive this crisis. That's how you're in the half of the people that survive it rather than get hurt by it. Brilliant. So taking those two together, the world is surprising, but you can get through it with discipline. I like it. (laughs) The other question we always ask our guests is what you think the most underappreciated thing is about investing? So I'll let you either answer that question or the most underappreciated thing about 2020. I'd say 80% of investment is relatively easy. And if you just get the big things right, like a little bit of diversification, worry a little bit about liquidity and things like that, you haven't got to do an awful lot of work to get your investment strategy 80% perfect. To to fill that last 20% to get a really amazing investment strategy actually takes a lot of detailed work on the next 10 things. That's what I find so interesting about investments. And for a lot of people, it's a lot of effort to make the investment strategy squeaky. You want every investment strategy to be on its tiptoes, just as brilliant as it can be. But it can seem like an awful lot of work to do that, to gain those extra 20% of benefits from a really, really good investment strategy. Nice. Priscilla? The most underappreciated thing about investing, I think, is making timely decisions and just how important that can be and just pondering and going back and forth how much time you can waste and just miss out on opportunities and I think where we've mentioned before that these opportunities don't always come around very often and they disappear very quickly I think making a timely decision can be quite what that provides that extra yield. The very final question that we ask all of our guests is is any recommendations on kind of books podcasts tv programs and I guess we'll maybe go quick fire because Phil I think you've got one in mind for us. Yeah, I was going to say I've been been getting really interested in the uh, poems of Nostradamus. They've been quite interesting <laughs> during this crisis. I'm trying to see what's coming next now. <laughs> Any big tips that you've gained from Nostradamus? Oh, no, but he did single out the year 2020 for a lot of attention. There's a couple of weeks left yet. We could have some more in store. Wow. <laughs> but it's a little bit hard to top that one. But Priscilla, you got anything for us on the recommendations? Probably Hello World which is a book I read not too long ago, just talking about AI and that side of things. And in a year where technology is kind of where we've been leaning towards and relying a lot more on uh, sort of these less face-to-face meetings, a lot more virtual meetings, I feel like that's a good one to see how far technology or how dangerous technology could potentially be. That sounds great. Check it out. Where do you go to for your news, Priscilla, every day? when you? I get mine from the BBC website and The Guardian and The Economist. Where do you go for your news, just out of interest? I listen to the uh, FT podcast. It's very brief, but just a really good one, first thing in the morning. 
That's interesting. That's another good recommendation. Yeah, sounds great. Priscilla, Phil, it's been a real pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Hey, thanks, everyone. It's been great. Thanks, both. That's all we've got time for this week on Investment Uncut. Please join us again next week for another episode as we get nearer to Christmas. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.